Okay, so we're going to talk about Esther again tonight, and this is our fourth uh, Extra Esther uh, lesson, and tonight we're going to talk a little bit about Esther's moral character, so this ought to be interesting. Uh, we're going to do one more of these next Wednesday night, and then we, we will put a, a finish on our combined Esther study from Sunday as well as on Wednesday night. And then we'll start a new topic two weeks from tonight. And the topic I'm thinking about doing is coming off the heels of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I wanna ask the question that is um, uh, raised a little bit in the suffering servant passages in the book of Isaiah. And I've always been intrigued by a phrase that is in Isaiah that says, by his wounds, we are healed. And I want to explore that a little bit uh, for a few weeks and see uh, if we can come up with some idea of what that possibly means. Uh, what, what did Isaiah have in mind? Of course, uh, how does the New Testament writers apply that to the life ministry of Jesus? So, that's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, and tonight we're going to take a look at Esther again, and I have on your handout, which I remembered to send out this week, uh, a number of references. There's only one part on that handout that has a number of references, and we'll look at them in a few moments, but we're going to do a little bit of background uh, information here tonight first, and uh, then we're going to... Um, come to some of those passages. So have your Bible ready, and we'll take a look at some of the verses that are there in a couple of moments. Uh, one of the challenging uh, features that we find in the book of Esther, besides the fact that it doesn't mention God at all, is uh, the ethical practices of the main characters. So we have Ahasuerus, we have Haman, we have Esther, and we have Mordecai. And uh, each of these individuals play a critical role in the story. Uh, there is the one particular one that I think is been questioned over the years, and that is what type of individual is Esther? Is she a hero or is she a, a survivalist? What, uh, what, how, what can we make of some of her decisions and why she does that? Um, Esther, it's interesting, has been praised and criticized both by Old Testament scholars. It just kind of depends upon who you read. Uh, she primarily within uh, the Christian church is portrayed as a hero that saves the nation of Israel from destruction. But a lot of uh, Jewish scholars um, see the other side of her and kind of view her as weak, selfish, and a passive, obedient woman uh, who's getting her own way, and the way she's doing it is she's getting by through her looks, by her beauty. And of course, there is that element, and we're going to tease that out here in a couple of moments. Uh, but um, I think what you'll find is that these two views of the person of Esther is reflected in uh, some of the different manuscripts of the Old Testament. I'll mention that in a moment. But I thought this um, is an interesting 
little picture. Uh, many of you know I love uh, Barney Fife and Andy Griffith. And there's this picture here of Barney between two individuals that are arguing. And uh, I thought, that's how you feel sometimes when you try to interpret the Bible. You're kind of stuck in the middle of opposing viewpoints. Um, sometimes when you read various books or various passages of scripture, uh, you can build a pretty compelling case from each side. And uh, both viewpoints, depending upon whom you're listening to, uh, you'll find, oh, I agree with what that individual is saying. Uh, then you listen to the opposite side, and you kind of go, boy, that individual has some uh, points as well. And when you enter into the twilight zone like that, what you find is you're kind of stuck in the middle. What do I do with this information? And sometimes the Bible has some ambiguity to it that um, is part of its mystique, I think. Uh, part of uh, when re you read the scriptures, different people will take away uh, different points from the same passage. And I think that's part of the dynamic of scripture. I think that's what uh, allows it to continue to have relevance from one generation to the next. Uh, some passages might also have some multiple meaning meanings depending upon the audience that is trying to understand it. Uh, and so that uh, brings us to a very important point that is definitely found in the book of Esther. Sometimes there are political reasons that the editors, uh, also they can be called redactors, um, will change some of the nuances of the text. And we talked about that this past Sunday uh, when we looked at the final message in the Queen's Gambit. And in chapter nine and part of chapter 10, uh, Mordecai is elevated. And the fact that the decree that Mordecai wrote uh, to counter Haman's decree um, is written in such a way that the numbers that are there of the casualties is astronomical. And what you find is that is probably a political um, uh, thing that is going on there to uh, elevate the numbers, uh, thus elevating the status of Mordecai and the nation of Israel. And it serves another purpose as well. And that is when others hear of the urban legend of uh, the uh, decree of Mordecai and how many casualties there were, it would cause um, uh, potential enemies that might invade Israel to have a, have a second thought to do so. And then finally, there are some religious reasons as well. And that happens to be uh, what is happening as we look at Esther tonight. And we find that there's some religious uh, editorializing that's going on, especially in those extra chapters of Esther that are found in the Apocrypha, uh, trying to change the viewpoint that you find in the book of Esther and Mordecai. And that's why we read a couple of weeks ago about the um, additions that added the prayers of Mordecai and Esther, which have a tremendous religious overtone to it. So uh, sometimes we are stuck in the middle of a passage uh, because there's some legitimate uh, differences of viewpoint 
Sometimes there are potential multiple meanings. Sometimes there's some political angles that are going on. And sometimes there's some religious angles that are going on. So let me stop right there for a moment and see if you have some questions or thoughts that I can help clarify if you do have any. Anyone? So I know I keep getting an unstable connection that keeps popping up on my screen. So occasionally um, uh, the screen might freeze on you just for a second or two. And uh, for those of you who might be listening to the podcast, keep listening. If, if it freezes, it's just for a couple of seconds. So that's part of the problem that we're experiencing tonight. So uh, tonight, I want to talk a little bit about the story of Esther that is found in three main manuscript types. Just, and I, this is not, I'm not going to bore you with this very long, but I want you to see uh, the potential differences of different families of manuscripts and what they're emphasizing. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Alexandrian manuscripts come out of Alexandria, Egypt, and the Masoretic text is the established accepted text that became the basis for uh, our Old Testament translation uh, in the Christian Bible, as well as the Hebrew Bible as well. Um, now, from that dominant text, uh, the Masoretic text, um, what we find is that um, Esther is portrayed as heroic. And um, even though what she does is very dangerous, she does so to save her people. She enters into the presence of the king and finally utters what her need is, that she needs uh, King Ahasuerus to reverse the decree of Haman and so forth. So she is really elevated in this family of manuscripts. And according to the Talmud, as you can see in your notes, uh, it states that she is one of the four most beautiful women in history. Uh, I don't know who the other three are, but she's considered to be one of the uh, four most beautiful women in history. She was also considered to be a prophetess. And of course, as you know, uh, prophets and prophetess are uh, the mouthpiece of God. So you can see the elevated nature of this particular family of manuscripts. Uh, in the Jewish Midrash, now Midrash is a way of interpretation. Uh, it's reading into the text a little bit, adding extra details to it. And uh, since Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin, the Midrash of this uh, family of manuscripts and the rabbis that uh, do the interpretation of it list her as a warrior of the tribe of Benjamin as well. So there you see some both political and religious nuances that are being added to the text uh, to try to make sure Esther's um, uh, character is, is established as righteous and moral and a keeper of Torah law. Now, you flip that, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek text tries to clean up some of the mess I'm going to show you in a moment that's found uh, in the Hebrew text when Esther 
at times appears to be distancing herself from Judaism uh, in order to win the favor of the king who is going to choose her to be the queen. And so um, here's some added scenes that I mentioned a little bit ago, the added scenes of Mordecai and Esther and praying in that extra Esther, some of the prayers um, is to make sure that the readers understand that God really is involved in the story, that it's not just a political story, there is a religious side to it, even though the name of God and the mention of God is not found in the text. Now, the Jewish midrash of the Greek text also suggests that Esther, uh, she was part of a harem originally, helped her to keep kosher uh, by observing a Jewish diet in the Torah and observing the Sabbath in secret. Now, I don't know how that's supposed to be done, but uh, in contrast, Daniel, uh, who is a Torah-observing Torah Jew, throws open the windows and prays three times a day, and he doesn't care who sees it. Uh, here in Esther, the suggestion is that um, uh, she kind of kept her devotion to the Torah secret, and uh, there were other people that helped hide the fact that she was a Jew and that she was a Torah observing Jew. Um, the next point there is the Talmud uh, entertains the possibility that Esther at times when she's in the presence of the king um, violated Torah by eating pork just to maintain appearances, uh, that she really is the queen of Persia, that she's Miss Persia. Um, that her Jewishness isn't revealed to the king until later in the story. Um, and so there you have an ethical dilemma. Um, she's eating pork uh, throughout the week. Uh, she's trying to observe Sabbath. And yet at the same time, she's violating uh, Torah observance in the process of being queen. Her power is largely due to her beauty uh, and uh, it becomes that because she is a consort to the king. Uh, she is the one that is chosen out of the harem, and uh, that becomes an ethical dilemma as well. But these texts uh, tend to highlight, I guess, the discomfort that Jews have with uh, the scroll of Esther, and, um, and how do they try to, um, how do they try to not gloss over, but change the perspective of Esther sleeping her way to power. So uh, let me stop there for a second, see if you have a question or a thought on, on that so far. And then I'm going to add another thing that comes from the other family of manuscripts um, that um, uh, comes from the scroll of Esther. Any thoughts so far? So on your handout, the next main point is the scroll of Esther says that Mordecai took Esther as his adopted daughter. And in Hebrew, the word for daughter is bat, B-A-T. Uh, but in the Septuagint, the Greek translation and the Talmud, it says that Mordecai took Esther as his bayit, B-A-Y-I-T, 
which is literally house, but it, the idea of it is one who dwells in the house, who belongs in the house, implying that Mordecai and Esther were spouses. So uh, I don't know what that sound is that um, we find in the background. Sorry about that. Um, so, so you can see here now there becomes an interpretive difficulty. Is Esther a bot? That is kind of a daughter that Mordecai adopts and takes care of, or is Esther Mordecai's wife? And if that is the case, here's the dilemma. It sparks this idea that um, is a full drama uh, that Esther had to lead a double sex life. Um, uh, she would have to sleep with the king, but as the wife of Mordecai, um, she would have to do what's called mikvah, do a ritual bath, and then be able to have intimate relationships with Mordecai. So you see one of the difficulties that is developing there. Uh, on a formal level, it means that Esther is trying to be Jewish, almost can't be Jewish because she's married to Ahasuerus, and yet at the same time, um, is there any room whereby in, in the Torah, a woman would be able to have two husbands at the same time? You see, never caught any of that when you're reading through the book of Esther, right? Yeah. So now there's this potential ethical problem here that uh, creeps in the closer you look at it. And that's why individuals like Martin Luther uh, during the days of the Reformation wanted to throw Esther out the window, didn't want it to be a part of the Bible. There's some other individuals that felt that way too, because they were understanding some of these ethical dilemmas that are found in the book. Have some thoughts or questions on any of that? go to the next slide. So what this boils down to basically is there are two views of Esther. Uh, one, Esther as a passive and manipulative woman um, that really doesn't have much concern for dietary laws. Uh, she's taken into the court of the pagan king. She conceals her identity. Uh, she's so beautiful that she's able to win the beauty contest. Um, she uh, is an individual that loses her virginity in bed with an uncircumcised Gentile that she's not married to just to please him um, so that she can win the position. Um, when Esther uh, risks her life um, by going to the king, she does so only after Mordecai pressures her to, to go into the presence of the king and to, uh, uh, to beg him to reverse Haman's decree. Um, Esther also um, has a surprising attitude of brutality. When uh, she does get the decree that allows the Jews to protect themselves, she asks for an extra day uh, than the day that was determined by Lot 
so that they could, she could continue to advance the assault. And that's what we saw in chapter nine this past Sunday is there was uh, 75,000 uh, individuals that were killed. The 10 sons of Haman were impaled at the city gate. Um, there were 300 Gentiles that are killed as well. So all of that put together, um, the viewpoint of Esther is one of being passive toward the king, but manipulative at the same time. And uh, then she becomes aggressive at after it becomes apparent that she is a Jew and she asks for an extra day of retaliation. On the other side of that is Esther as the hero of the Jewish nation. She's viewed as a woman of faith that humbles herself to save her people. She could have just looked out for her own neck, but she finally shows who she really is. Uh, she identifies herself as a Jew. And, um, and part of the story, if you remember early on, she bids Mordecai uh, to have the whole Jewish people pray for three days uh, before she's to go in and uh, uh, ask the king to intervene. And of course, the book of Esther originates that festival of Purim, and uh, it continues to um, annually celebrate her intervention on behalf of the nation. So um, here's the two views of Esther, and you'll feel probably uh, more resonance with one versus the other as you read through the book. And I would probably say uh, most people will continue to look at Esther as a hero uh, because that's kind of been the way we've interpreted her, um, our entire Christian lives. So that's kind of the way uh, you know, most preachers preach the book of Esther is that she's a hero and she's not an individual that happens to um, save the Jewish people, but um, why was she there in that role in the first place? And, you know, um, it's intriguing to me that Mordecai says that if Esther doesn't step up for such a time as this, that deliverance of the Jews will come from some other means. I don't know what he has in mind there, uh, but he does say that to her. So let me stop there. Do you have comments, questions, uh, anything, confusion that needs clarification? Um, when I first read your notes, uh -huh. I had to go back and check your manipulative word because mm -hmm. manipulate it. Say that again, I think you dropped out. Not her doing the man manipulating. I always thought of Esther as being manipulated, not her doing the manipulating. So I okay. had to, that kind of struck me as odd because she really, you know, Mordecai didn't give her a choice. All the women were being lined up to, you know, prance in front of the king mm -hmm. and she kind of had to do it. Yeah. Um, well, there's definitely a, a side to it where she has been manipulated by the system. But I think yeah. what you're going to what you're going to find by the time you get to the end of the book, she manipulates uh, uh, King Ahasuerus to allow for an extra day of slaughter. 
So that's did she kind of, really manipulate? Did she really manipulate him, or did she just ask him? Well, I, I think some of this will come into play too, in what you think is happening between um, uh, why she does not request. Uh, the king to do something at the first banquet that she holds for uh, Ahasuerus and Haman. Um, and the manipulative part of it is uh, the way she could have forced Haman in his begging for his life to appear as if Haman is attacking her because um, one of the things that Hazawaris does is he blows his top when he comes back in. You remember he leaves the palace right. and he comes back in and it appears as though Haman is attacking her. The text though seems to suggest yeah. that all he's doing is begging for his life. Whereas uh, what we find possibly happening is there's, um, there's a book called The Queen You Thought You Knew uh, by Rabbi Foreman that makes the case that um, Esther seems to have laid out some innuendos that there's a possible relationship that was going on between her and Haman. And that uh, one of the things that she is doing is manipulating an image as if she has interest in Haman. That's why she invites him to the banquet. And, and Hazaris gets jealous of that. And uh, one of the reasons he decides to hang Haman is because he's jealous of the fact that he thinks something is going on. Now, whether that's the case or not is one of those things that um, right along with them. Like. You know, it's one of those things that I guess you, you're guessing at. Uh, you're making a, a, a best guess on that. But uh, that's why I put that. I was thinking more of, of uh, when, when I used that term, I was thinking more of the fact that uh, she has uh, made made that extra day of slaughter a way to uh, elevate Mordecai. Now, he's already been elevated to second in the kingdom, but in those three verses in chapter 10, he, it, it's almost as if uh, he, she has accomplished for him uh, almost like, um, almost kind of like a, a messiah uh, type of position that he is elevated in the eyes of the nation as an anointed one, um, that type of thing. So again, it's, it's, everybody's going to kind of have different takes on this in, and what jumps out. In fact, if you keep reading the book of Esther over and over, I'm sure you'll walk away with different impressions of different parts of the book, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, through di through um, different readings of it. it, that's why it's such a fabulous book. It's at you know, this would make a good Netflix series. It really <laughs> would. Um, 
this would make a, a, a terrific one of those short Netflix uh, uh, series that uh, because there's a lot of intrigue, uh, there's a lot of twists and turns to it. So, but I understand what you're saying. Maybe manipulative uh, is a little bit too strong of a word. I don't know, but that's what came to mind. So, I'm a, I'm a woman. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah. So what Esty says is she thinks that Haman is the one pulling her strings, that Haman is the one that's manipulating her. Uh, and, um, and she is individual that within the, oh, you mean Mordecai, not Haman? That Mordecai's pulling her strings. That Mordecai's the manipulative one. That Mordecai is the one that's <laughs> that Mordecai's the one that's kind of manipulating the situation. Which I can I can see that. I can you know I can see elements of that. Is there any other way for a woman to have power back then? What's that? To manipulate. Is yeah. there any other? Is there any other way for a woman? to have power in that day and age, except to manipulate using her beauty. And I mean, personally, I don't. Yeah, personally, I don't think so. I, I think that's a culture that, uh, yeah, there, there are some women that rise to positions of exaltation. You think of Deborah, the judge in the book of Judges. Um, uh, she is one of the deliverers. We don't know her backstory, though, and how she got there. But um, I think you're right, Brenda. I think that on the, on the whole, um, in a patriarchal society, uh, women are looked at mostly as um, the inferior sex and, and are there for their beauty and their domestic um, you know, uh, responsibilities and so forth. I think you're right. Okay, well, let's see if you have a different impression as we look through a couple of verses here. So um, it's primarily at the beginning of the book, uh, although I do have a couple of references toward the end. So if you have the book of Esther, we'll look at just a few verses and I'm gonna ask some questions. Um, I, I don't know if there's answers to it or not. So in chapter two, verses one through four, it says, later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let uh, beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Um, so 
notice a couple of things here. Uh, these are all virgins, which uh, I think is an argument against Esther being the wife of Mordecai, obviously. But, um, but all of these are supposedly young virgins. There's that adjective there. Uh, they're young virgins. Um, and what we find is that verse four is the key. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So the innuendo there is that the prescription for the new queen is uh, the queen has to satisfy the king in his um, in his desire for good looks as well as her um, her sexuality and the appeal of her sexuality and her willingness to engage uh, sexually with the king. So, um, so you know, obviously Esther had to um, had to play that part as she's brought in as one of the beautiful women in Persia. Um, now we're keeping in the back of our mind this whole time, should Esther's character be promoted as a role model uh, with some of these things in mind. So look at verse eight in the same chapter. Uh, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was who had charge of that. So um, Esther is being added here um, uh, to the royal harem. At least the way the text read, it does not appear as though she resists it. Um, so if you contrast this to the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel himself all seem to be resistant of being brought up in the king's court and um, being given uh, food and privileges and all those type of things. And they end up in a lion's den and the fiery furnace because they resist. None of that seems to take place here in the book of Esther. Well, yeah, and Esty just said, but she was a woman and she didn't have a voice. So that's, yeah. That's right. Those were men that were standing up. You're right. Although it led them to what potentially could have been capital punishment, but they survived because of God's intervention. So, no, they were drafted. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah, she's drafted into this role. And I think all of that is the buildup to why uh, most Jews feel that she still has a good moral uh, role model because this is something that she didn't have a choice in. Okay, Take a look at verse 17. Um, it says, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and a and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So question number three is, um, did Esther find favor with the king because uh, she pleased him um, and uh, sexually? And I think 
obviously that has to be a part of it. Uh, she has certain things that appealed to his own desires. Number four, in verse 10 and in verse 20, um, we see here that she conceals her identity. It says directly in verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. That goes back to what Esther just said. Mordecai is the one that's kind of pulling the strings here. Verse 20 of chapter 2 you find the same thing, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. So there again is that um, that point that Esty made about Mordecai pulling the strings. Why did Esther conceal her Jewish identity? Well, um, did she did she want to become queen? I mean, if she reveals her Jewish identity. Um, does the king choose her, um, or does it make a, you know, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, okay, so, so Esty's point in all this. <laughs> Esty's trying to defend her namesake that she she has the name Esther, and so she's saying, "Hey, Esther's the one that's being manipulated through all this and doesn't have a choice." Sounds to me I like agree Esther. with Esty. Yeah, sounds like she has a little bit of vested interest in that viewpoint. <laughs> no, I agree with her. I know you agree with her, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> And you know the king would have picked her anyway. I yeah, that's true. That's see, that's another point. That's you know, I don't care if you're Jewish or not. You're the prettiest girl in the bunch. You're going to be my wife, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Very well. May not have been the only Jewish girl. Well, that could be too. You're right, Brenda. Yeah, there could have What's been the only Jew in this place. Yeah, that's <laughs> there's only one good-looking Jewish woman. <laughs> 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 okay so it this is just kind of fun to kind of play with the text a little bit and see you know um that you can see how different people land in different spots on on different interpretive issues not just in this book but any any uh book of the bible okay let's go over to chapter four for a second Esther chapter four and come down to verses four and five. So it says, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai. So in chapter four, um, is Esther trying to uh, halt Mordecai's mourning after the decree of Haman? Uh, and if she is, why is she trying to um, get him to stop mourning? Um, uh, could, could Esther be in the dark at this point? Could it be that she doesn't have the information yet about Haman's uh, um, decree? Uh, decree and about uh, 
the death sentence on Mordecai and all that was she kept in the dark about that um so th there's some thoughts there why did why did she try to get Mordecai to not be a public spectacle um is she doing so uh to save her own reputation to safeguard her own reputation uh that type of thing so got some thoughts there yeah, she didn't want him to draw attention to himself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, right. You're embarrassing me. Um, okay. So now, now let's come down to the next one, down in chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Uh, it says here, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, so She's talking to Hathak, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said about the edict and all this. And it says, all the kings, verse 11, officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So... Mordecai is uh, requesting Esther go in and uh, and and tell the king about this edict that Haman has written, um, and uh, it's in uh, she is resisting here, and she her explanation is if I go in uninvited, I'm going to be killed, um, and so she hasn't seen the king in thirty days for a month. I guess she was in quarantine, uh, but <laughs> what I don't know what's what's going on there. But why is Esther why is Esther resisting? Is she only thinking about herself at this point uh, and her own life when so many other lives are on the line? So why is she resisting Mordecai's desire? Any any ideas on that? Any thoughts on that? The rules. She's following the rules. She's a good woman. She's following the rules. She's listening to everything. Okay. <clears throat> Do you think she's being selfish here? Yeah. Well, if he kills me, what that is that going to accomplish is right. However, if she doesn't say anything and the edict goes forth, then she, uh, and this is the point Mordecai is going to make to her. Don't think you're going to escape. If you don't say anything to the king, uh, you're going to be killed along with the other Jews. So, um, so he is really pushing her at this point. Uh, I'm at verse 15, um, uh, where it, he, um, well, no, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, verse 14, rather. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish, and who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. In other words, you're gonna, you and your family uh, is going to perish as well. Now, remember, she's an 
orphan, which is interesting to me, what it says here, but you and your father's family will perish. Who are the relatives that are in mind here if she's an orphan at this point? Is it, you know, is it grandma and grandpa or is it aunts and uncles or, you know, or is it Mordecai? Again, that goes back to that viewpoint, you know, is Mordecai really her spouse? Really? You're breaking up. Sorry. Who is who is speaking there? No. Okay, two more questions. Uh, let's jump over to chapter nine. But these are the type of things that you could do through the whole book: is just keep questioning the text and figuring out, you know, all these different angles. So, uh, verse nineteen. I mean, uh, thirteen of chapter nine. Here's where Esther then comes to the uh, king and uh, makes the request for a second day. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on the poles. So why is that second day needed? That, that comes into question. Um, did she really feel that second day was needed to keep her people safe? Was it anger? Was it hate? What was it that requested that second day? Uh, then also, why is she publicly humiliating the 10 sons of Haman? I think a lot of this is cultural type stuff. That's what I mentioned on Sunday in the message. I don't think this is unusual. I think it, this is just kind of normal protocol in that day and age. I don't think it's unusual. Any thoughts? Okay, so here's a good way to kind of finish off tonight. Next slide. Is there such a thing as kosher adultery? <laughs> so one of the troubling scenes for most of the rabbis or the sages is the idea that Esther, presumably a nice Jewish girl, marries a Gentile and has sexual relationships with this uncircumcised man. Uh, this was generally justified for the greater good by many rabbis in order to fulfill God's plan to save his people. Esther had to be married to the king and had to intervene. So in this case, um, her, her relationship, her sexual relationship with the king is kosher because of the greater good that is being accomplished. Um, there's a rabbi by the name of Rashi. He's a French rabbi um, that said in commenting on Esther 2.11, he says, Mordecai said that the only justification for this righteous woman to be taken to sleep with an uncircumcised Gentile was that she would eventually rise up to save Israel. And that kind of becomes uh, a common thought among Jewish scholars is this is the way it had to go. Um, next, the idea that Mordecai and Esther were a married couple has had a long history also in Jewish tradition, originating in the Septuagint, flourishing in the Talmud and continuing in commentaries of the 16th century and beyond. Um, so 
So the intrigue in this is, is there a love triangle that's going on? Again, scholars are divided. Go ahead. What were we going to say? Is someone going to say something? All right, I have a couple more slides and then we'll call it an evening. Some further complications. If the intercourse with the Hasuerus was not consensual, then no transgression was being involved because basically in the eyes of the Jews, uh, he was raping her uh, because he brought her in and, and chose her. But Esther... Um, must have been, and this is some of the thoughts of some of the Jewish rabbis, Esther must have been a very talented sexual partner in order to pull off such a ruse, to pretend to be enjoying having sex with the king and satisfying him like no other woman, that's what chapter 2 verse 17 uh, seems to suggest, while at the same time passively resisting. So how can she be passive and yet stand above and uh, as better than all the other women? So some interesting, some, and she was a virgin, right? Yeah, so where did she get the skill for that, right? So do you see, isn't this, a, a, this is intriguing stuff. <laughs> we are really messing with my wife's identity right now. She, she really thought the whole life Esther was this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, last point on this slide. Now, if Esther has agreed to have consensual sexual relationships with Ahasuerus, um, is she then, if she's married to Mordecai, is she forbidden to have sexual relationships with Mordecai and so that they can no longer have intimate relationships because now she is the wife of the king. You make a great point. You make a great point. So what Esty just said is, how can she say no to the king? Vashti tried to do that, right? And look what happened to her. We know she was deposed as the queen, some people think that she was executed, but um, so that's a great point to be made. Really good point. Thoughts? Also, yeah, also, and even up through poor Princess Diana, the women were examined to make sure that they were virgins. Yeah. So I don't th think this married to Mordecai has, holds any water. It might not. It might not. It's just a. It's just one of those viewpoints that's out there. As you take this, this material, uh, and you factor in added elements to it from the additions to Esther, as it's just kind of people are trying to figure it out and trying to come up with a cohesive viewpoint. And I, and I can see why some people didn't want Esther to be a part of the canon. A scripture because it is something that is difficult to come to one, I guess, uh, obvious conclusion. And um, so other thoughts on that? we got one more slide to do and then we're done for tonight. Any other questions or comments? All right. So this is, this is just kind of 
to tuck away in the back of your mind. Um, was Esther a victim of sex trafficking? And, and my Esty says, yes, she was. So then how does the book of Esther, how, what role might it play into ongoing generations of sex trafficking? Uh, does it have an important role uh, as the last question on that slide says, does the story of Esther speak to the Me Too issue that has come up uh, over um, just recently uh, over the last number of years? So um, before I get to that last question though is, so King Ahasuerus rounds up many of the unmarried women in the country for his personal harem. Each has um, a sexual, that should be uh, audition, not addition. So spell check got me there. Each has a sexual audition with the king. And as the story unfolds, the language offers the impression that the characters are caught up in circumstances beyond their control, which I really do believe is true. Um, how does this affect Esther in the story? Does it explain why she's hesitant to petition the king? Uh, why can't Mordecai protect her from being abducted in the first place? Um, there's a lot of questions there. And then is this book one that could be kind of um, curriculum uh, to be examined uh, of some of the dynamics that take place when there is um, sex trafficking or uh, abuse, either it could be physical or psychological uh, between men and women, even to our own day and age. So I think that book probably has a lot to offer to kind of show that um, what we see with the Harvey Weinsteins and others like him is not a new situation. It's something that finds its roots even in the earliest records that we have. But um, any thoughts on tonight? So my whole purpose of tonight is just to show you that when you read through a book, there are multiple viewpoints a lot of times on the content. And until you kind of read it again, and even sometimes until someone helps point it out to you, you sometimes just kind of, it just, you just pass by it. You never really think about it, but any closing thoughts, comments, questions, clarifications? Um, uh, taken like all the other girls and it's an evil situation. Um, God was still able to redeem that situation and bring something good out of it. Intervene, and that's why the book of Esther is probably the dominant book when you're talking about the providence of God, how God works behind the scenes to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, even though you can't assume that the moment is not, is not forfeited his ability to change the circumstances and bring about something different. Other thoughts, comments? Esther's good. Okay, yes, Esther's good. <laughs>
Yeah, right. <laughs> she's oh boy, she's gonna. I she, I have a long ride home. <laughs> oh, I've had a lot of fun tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, anything else before we say good night? Okay, so Mark asked, asked this question. What happened to the other women uh, that he did not choose? My take on it is they remained in his harem. Yeah. Yeah, until they got old and ugly and got replaced, right? <laughs> they upgraded, right? Yeah, okay. Any other thoughts? That's why Esther hadn't seen him in 30 days. Well, that's a great question. I don't know. Probably because he had those other women in the harem. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, he did have the harem and he did not need to always see his wife. I think that's probably a pretty good explanation on that. Yeah. It does not seem as though Esther was on the bad side of the king uh, because when she does come into his presence and he extends the royal scepter, he says, hey, name what you want. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Again, I think that's a figure of speech, but uh, he's not mad at her. You don't get any hint at that. So yeah, she's the trophy wife. Yeah, she might've been just, oh, yeah. But that's a good question, Brenda. Why 30 days? I don't know. I really don't know. Rotation, your number's up. Uh, all right, so we'll finish this little extra Esther next Wednesday night, okay? And uh, thanks for all the interaction and I hope you have a good night. Thanks. Okay, you're welcome, good night. Night.